Welcome to the Hope Unyielding podcast. I'm your host, Hope Johnson, and I have the privilege of hearing some outstanding people from all walks of life share stories of God's faithfulness in their lives. God knows that remembering His faithfulness doesn't come naturally. When He led Israel through the Jordan River in a miraculous parting of the sea, He knew the people would be quick to forget. Because of this, He commanded Joshua to set up twelve stones to serve as a memorial to the people of Israel forever of what He had done. The memorial stones of today are our stories. It's one thing to read about God's faithfulness in Scripture. It's another to look into the eyes of someone who has been in the depths of darkness you now inhabit, but who has come through them with praise on their lips. Whatever you're facing, I pray that the stories shared on this podcast will encourage you with the truth that God is always faithful, and whatever your circumstances, you always have hope. Today I'm talking with Shane O'Neill about how Jesus literally saved his life while he was enslaved by a drug addiction. When I first heard Shane's story, it was at a time when I was quite discouraged about how I'd been praying for many people I love to know Jesus, but I hadn't seen any movement for years. Um, But when he shared about what Jesus had done in his life, it really snapped me out of my discouragement and it reminded me of just how passionately Jesus pursues us and that I can trust him with my loved ones. Um, Even if I don't see movement on the surface, it doesn't mean that he isn't working. Shane's story is one of beautiful and shocking transformation that points to just how amazing and loving Jesus is, and I can't wait for you guys to hear it. Shane is the editorial director for Proven Ministries, a ministry focused on helping both men and women pursue sexual purity through the power and beauty of the gospel. He's also the host of The Naked Gospel, which is a branch of Proven Ministries. It's one of my absolute favorite podcasts, and I think you guys should definitely check it out when you're finished listening to this episode. Um, But without further ado, let's talk to Shane. Um, Thanks so much for joining me today, Shane. Yeah, really thrilled to be here with you, Hope. Um, Loved having you on our podcast. Uh, For your listeners, you guys should totally check that out. Hope did a great job and uh, thrilled to be with you. Thank you. Yeah, that was a lot of fun being on the being the interviewee rather than than the interviewer. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Shane, could you talk a little bit about yourself, what you're up to these days, so the listeners can get to know you a little bit better? Sure. Uh, I'm my my job is uh, editorial director for a sexual integrity nonprofit called Proven Ministries. Uh, I've been working with them for maybe like four-ish years. Uh, I'm engaged. I'm due to get married in like 36 days, something like that. Um, And uh, in the middle of remodeling a house, uh, getting pretty excited about the summer. Um, Weather has a huge effect on me and uh, summers make me happy. Uh, They're good for my soul. And uh, and so, yeah, a lot of transition. Transition's good. I know... um, people who study missions and missiologists, they'll say that the difficulty of transition is that you're living in between stories. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. I feel a bit of that right now, living in between stories, how learning to lament and let go of the stories behind me, singleness, those sorts of things, and learning to inhabit new stories uh, and how to do that well. 
Hmm. That's really well said. I've never heard it like that before. I like that. So, but it yeah, just sounds like, it's helpful. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the story that you're walking into is, is a really good one. So I'm, I'm happy for you and I'm, I'm going to be excited to see what God does in your life and your wife's life. So cheering you on from over here in New York. One thing that really strikes me about your testimony is just how much of a crazy transformation it was. So about two months ago, two or three months ago, I had a man on here named Ken Stokes and he was third in command in a notorious prison gang, the Aryan Brotherhood. And he was one of those people that you just would think Jesus is never going to reach him, you know, in in human terms. Jesus is never going to reach him. He's too hardened. He hates others. He is a racist, all of these things. And he has the most beautiful story of transformation. And I have, it's often the people that you think are the furthest gone, that when they do have that beautiful transformation, they just take the world by storm for the kingdom of God. And in my observation of your journey through reading your work and through listening to your work on the naked gospel, I've just really been blown away by how God has made your life into just this beautiful offering to him. And I would just love to to hear your story. I mean, I mentioned in the introduction that you were addicted to drugs in your late teens, um, but you did grow up in a Christian family. I mean, from what I know, our upbringings were pretty similar, uh, families in ministry, good, stable family. But um, I believe it was probably when you were in your early teens, you kind of stopped walking on the path that maybe your parents would have expected. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. I, uh, I was born in the Philippines. My folks were missionaries there. Uh, they were there for 13 years. I just lived there till I was five. Uh, three sisters, two older, one younger, um, which really just translates to uh, uh, a lot of stories about me being beat up by women. Um, <laughs> Uh, they're awesome. They were my closest friends growing up because we moved so often. Um, let's see. So yeah, I had a good childhood. Um, there is a, a whole kind of, there are whole pieces of psychological work dedicated to uh, missionary kids, third culture kids, as they call them. Um, so all sorts of conundrums and counseling that was needed later on in life for sure. But uh, it was a good childhood. Um, parents are awesome. Uh, family's awesome. And, uh, we ended up in Pennsylvania, uh, when I was in middle school. And I, I suppose the thing that's, man, there's so, it's so hard to trace antecedents. Um, um, but as far as I know, in eighth grade, uh, some monumental things happened. My grandfather passed away. I was very close with him. It was my first real exposure to death. Uh, and death is such a significant thing. But it, uh, just a few weeks after that, this girl I was dating uh, was, was raped. She was sexually abused. Oh. Uh, and then within that month, I had an aunt. She committed suicide. Uh, and suicide is a, a very sharp idea. Um, the idea that there might be life is so hard that there might be more hope in death than there is in life and somebody getting to the point where they're willing to find out. Um, so the first time I was introduced with suicide uh, as kind of a, a life option, so to speak. Uh, and so all of those just really capsized me. Um, I was probably mishandled to a degree. Uh, 
kind of the best counsel I got was that these things happen for God's glory. And I was supposed to bite my lip and say he was good, you know, that, that she got raped so that God would get glory. And I was like, well, I'm not going to say he's good. That's just not true. Mm -hmm. You know, like this isn't good. And if he, if he brought this about for his glory so that he could be happy, then why would I want anything to do with him? So I never stopped believing God existed. I just stopped liking him. At my darkest moment, um, my greatest anger towards God was that he he trapped me by making me. Uh, huh. I was destined to go to hell, but life was hell. And mm-hmm. so is is either choose me, submit to me, or go to this awful place. And so I, I felt like he'd placed me in a trap, a really big trap, and I didn't know what to do. So that was when you said you were in about eighth grade? Eighth grade, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so that was eighth grade. And then, so, I mean, the philosophy of a middle schooler isn't going to be very advanced. If somebody had asked me what the point to life is, I probably would have said something like happiness. Mm-hmm. Uh, who doesn't want to be happy? I just wanted to be happy. And, uh, and it seemed like the people around me wanted to be happy. So then when I heard glory, I heard happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the expense of our happiness, God makes happiness, even if it includes despair on our end. And so for me, it was kind of a zero sum game. If this didn't work, then I'll go over here. So it was like, okay, this thing that the people who brought me up taught me was, does the point to life isn't the point to life. Mm -hmm. Um, This won't bring me the most happiness. Uh, So what will, and I just asked the world and they said, uh, they said sleeping around and money and, and drugs. So Mm -hmm. I said, okay, I'll do those things. Mm -hmm. And that really began that journey um, for me. Um, I I don't know how far ahead you want me to go, but, uh, but yeah, I think, I think I was in three or four different schools through high okay. school, suspension, expulsion, expulsion, suspension, expulsion. And then, yeah, I mean, a lot of, a lot could be said at that point, whether it's relating with my family or friends mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. where I was with Jesus, those sorts of things. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about your friends? Was there something, because I mean, what my assumption would be is if you weren't getting something from your parents, those answers weren't making sense, then something did make sense with your friends. Um, There was some sense of camaraderie, um, something that compelled you to stay in that place. Uh, Also going a little bit more into the drug use and how that escalated. Yeah, I was a a part of that. I guess I suppose it really would be that first wave of millennialism. Um, I was born in 90. And so too late to be a Gen Xer and just right at the beginning of, of being a millennial where we were digital natives in a lot of ways, but also just catching the cusp of being digital immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were fascinated with the music of the 90s, um, but then also the music of Woodstock was still very influential upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, Nirvana and those sorts of bands even as they start, some of those members started to die, we would then kind of venerate them and deify mm-hmm. them in our own ways. So there's music really, uh, I mean, we just, in a, in a simple sort of way, we were kind of anarchists, just believed that giving the middle finger to the government and to mm-hmm. authority and tradition was the way to go mm-hmm. and that everything we'd been taught was a lie. Um, 
So <clears throat> that's, I guess that's kind of the, the milieu of the upbringing in a lot of ways. And my friends are just like me, even if they came from really beat up homes, mm-hmm. um, they were similar to me in that they kind of hated authority, hated tradition. A lot of them struggled in school. It's, uh, it's something that's widespread now, so much so that, that the system itself has had to kind of reduce its expectations for mm-hmm. students because of some of the boundaries we pressed at that point. Um, but even then, we were kind of outliers, I think. Uh, now it's a lot more widespread when it comes to, um, well, other millennials and subsequent generations. So, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to qualify. I think on the ground, we were just all escaping together. Hmm. I used drugs because I didn't know what to do with the pain of the world. Um, I always thought that God cared. And then when I started to believe that he didn't care, I used, I used drugs to insulate myself from the reality that the people around me hurt real big and I hurt real big. And I didn't hmm. know what to do with that. Um, and it was a pretty simple uh, formula. Um, use these drugs and you'll be happy. The more you use of them, the happier you'll be. And so I used as many of them as often as I could Mm -hmm. so that I could maximize my happiness. It was a very utilitarian way of living. And my parents were great through all of this. Definitely moments of panic, but they tried to have those moments away from me uh, so that they wouldn't react to me. I think uh, as often as I could, they tried to have dinners. And I think every Tuesday night was mandated. Okay. Um, and they encouraged us to bring our friends. So if I want, had to be with my family, then I would bring a friend or two. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends didn't grow up with, uh, with families that cared or had meals together. And, uh, and so my friends would just look down. They'd eat real fast and they'd just mm-hmm. wait. And they didn't know what to do. <laughs> uh-huh. My parents would always ask the question, what, tell us one, some, one thing you learned today. And they'd yeah. go around with that question. And, uh, and it was interesting to see the development of my own friends uh, they would ask, they'd be asked a question, they'd answer it. I, I, sometimes I don't know, or, or as simple as, mm-hmm. uh, as something about math, you know, and mm-hmm. then that's it. They just tuck their head again. Uh, but then over the years, they'd start writing out the answers on paper because they knew they were going to the O'Neill's house for okay. dinner <clears throat> and the parents cared they'd asked. And so they'd hold it and their hands would be shaking and they'd read it. Uh, and it's gotten to the point where it was a year or two ago, we went to the beach and I invited um, a friend from high school uh, used a lot of drugs with and, mm-hmm. and we were pr- promiscuous uh, in our endeavors and and not together, just as young guys. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, we were at the beach and we had a meal and he was there with the family and we were finishing up the meal and he looked at my family and he said, he said, and? Mm-hmm. And everyone was just quiet and he said, when are you going to ask the question? What did I learn today? Because mm-hmm. uh, he'd been preparing for it all day, and he knew he was going to the O'Neills, and he was expecting that question. Um, and my parents just kind of blank stares, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off. So they left a huge impression, and I think they helped to socialize a lot of my friends mm-hmm. uh, in ways that that are hard to quantify. Um, even my friends would go out and approach my dad, and they'd ask him, you know, who's this Jesus guy, and then mm-hmm. they'd hang out with my dad and do a Bible study together or whatever. I'd never go to it. Uh, but it'd be one on that one. My, my parents had their own relationships with my friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, I mean, this part of the story is just to highlight the significance of my parents and how crucial role they can have a ministry through their son, even as their son is rebelling, mm-hmm. you know? 
Yeah. So I'm going to ask a question and I think it's the wrong question. So I guess part of the answer might be correcting this question. Why was it that your parents ministered to you and loved to you? Why didn't that get through to you? It's a good question. And again, there are probably a couple different ways to answer it. I think I, I was very angry. Uh, if, you're, if you're asking the question, Shane, what would you say to yourself if you were to go back and talk to yourself? Um, I would say... I would say that, uh, Shane, your pain is a microcosm of God's pain. Hmm. Uh, that you hurt because he hurts. Yeah. Uh, he looked at death and wept. And you look at death and it makes you weep. You're like God in your pain and your reaction hmm. to death. Her getting raped breaks him apart because we are designed to be his bride and to be pure and true and only his. Hmm. Uh, and covenant is sacred to him. He's the one who made it. Right. So I, I like how the gospel dignifies pain. It dignifies mm -hmm. depression yeah. and anxiety and fear in a lot of ways. I mean, Jesus being so anxious that he's, he's, he's sweating blood. It's pretty extreme. And so that's, that's what I would say to me. I needed someone who could look at my pain and instead of saying, kind of get over it, this is for God's yeah. glory. And no one ever said that, but that's how I heard it. Yes. Um, but no one was able, to, it was still a sidestep of my pain as opposed to looking through my pain with me to see Jesus. Maybe mm -hmm. even sitting in the dark, ending in style with me, not necessarily pulling me forward, but just willing to sit with me in the dark. And every now and then letting me throw a punch at his face, you know, and just eating it uh -huh. and then sitting back down and just, just waiting me out. Um, that's what I needed. I didn't get any of that, but I did have a lot of people who stuck it out with me, not least of all my parents. Um, they continued to believe in me and fight for me and uh, different youth pastors. But a lot of my friend's parents from when I was in middle school stopped letting their children hang out with me. Uh, public mm. school parents didn't care at all. Yeah. Um, I, I was the least of their worries. Um, but so, it, yeah, a lot of uh, turnover when it came to friendships. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, I really like what you're saying about Jesus sitting with us in our pain. And I do think that... I, not from my parents, but I think I intuited the narrative growing up that, yeah, everything bad you go through is just for God's glory, almost like God likes it. And in my own story, it's clinical depression chronically throughout my 20s, and I'm, I'm doing very well now. But what Jesus taught me about his character was that he does sit with me in my pain, and he does not tell me to get over it. And I love the word that the writers of the Synoptic Gospels use to talk about Jesus' compassion. And I'm not going to try it in Greek because I'm going to mangle it, but just this gut-wrenching compassion. I love this sermon by Charles Spurgeon that just gets all into that. So I'll put it in the show notes about um, compassion. Totally yeah, I think it's like compassion, the compassion of Christ. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. But Charles Spurgeon struggled with depression and he never told people, get over it. He said, Jesus sits with you in your pain. I think, I mean, we still want to get to kind of when, when did Jesus meet you and you met Jesus, but um, as I can see in your life right now, the fact that you walked through that gives you empathy to comfort others in their pain. So although I'm sure you wouldn't want to go back to that place, he's used parts of that for good. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah. It is my story. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't rewrite it. Mm-hmm. So when did you 
in a sense, reach a breaking point. Um, from what I remember from reading and listening to your story, you were pretty much on your deathbed from heroin usage. Um, is that is that correct? Yeah, I was a, I was a, I was a mess. Yeah, the is a bit of a conundrum because the thing that promised me life was killing me. Um, they said, do these things and you'll be happy. But then my friends are starting to die. Uh, and I, I, I processed suicide, um, but we use drugs so that we don't have to commit suicide, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then people were dying because of the drugs. Yeah. And so that was hard and confusing. Um, I, I, was, I was all sorts of a mess. I, I weighed 100 pounds. Uh, and I weigh something like 170 now. Okay. Well. Um, so I weighed 100 pounds and I was slightly yellow, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, like heroin. It is, it is interesting that we, we do start to take on the features of, our, of the things we worship, the gods mm -hmm. that we pursue. And it was certainly the case for me. Um, I was a mess. Yeah. Uh, again, I, 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 felt, that's what, I was 19. I just graduated high school. Uh, I was a nice, nice enough kid that uh, schools continued to pass me along, even though I really didn't deserve to graduate from any of those, cl those classes. Um, but somehow I graduated. My family moved down to Tennessee. They said, hey, Shane, we love you. You can come with us if you want. We don't mm -hmm. think you will. But uh, so I stayed and I moved in with my friends because my friends were my family, as far as I understood it. And uh and it kind of got everything we wanted. We partied every night and it was a huge home. Um, started going to community college, ended up having to drop out of that uh, pretty quickly. And, and I was a legit mess. Um, and I, I, had a I had a dream amongst other things. And in this dream, God came to me and he showed me his heart. And I didn't know God had a heart. Hmm. Um, and so seeing his heart tore open my heart and showed me that it was safe to feel. Um, and that was, that was big. That was very significant. And after that, I, my parents had sent me this casting crowns album where they'd sing about this God who went through loneliness so that I wouldn't have to know loneliness, um, went through shame so that I wouldn't have to know shame and embarrassment and so on and so forth, despair even. And, uh, and I realized that the God who came to my dream was Jesus. Uh, and so I, it was a very simple prayer. This was in, my goodness, this was in November of 2009. I prayed, a, I prayed a very simple prayer. God, uh, I'm going to go visit my family in December for Christmas, uh, and they know who you are, so they can introduce me to you. Mm -hmm. If you really love me like, like Jesus seems to, then keep me alive. Uh, if you really want me, then keep me alive, and I'll give you my life. Uh, if, if you aren't Jesus, then I want nothing to do with you, and mm -hmm. you can cut the cord anytime you like. Uh, obviously, I, I made it alive for a month. I went down in December, pretty candid with my parents. They saw my arms all sorts of beat up from uh, from needle holes, and uh, and the withdrawal started. It was just mm. awful. <laughs> it was so bad. I basically sat in a chair for 
a month and tried to figure out what the heck grace was and unconditional love. And my, my family would take turns uh, every night just staying up with me and they'd cry with me or they'd read scripture or they'd do whatever, but I couldn't sleep and I couldn't really eat. I couldn't use the bathroom. Uh, you're just sweating and crying. You're in pain. Um, it's a de- very, very demonic experience. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. So it was, uh, I, it's obviously a euphemism. Interesting. It, it, it is looking back I mean, now. Yeah. now I, I just remember this one verse is a, a proverb or maybe it's a Psalm. I don't actually recall, but I, I just remember it, it says, uh, um, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. And I had to, I, I just clung to that verse. It was like, okay, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are saved. So I had to believe that I was righteous mm-hmm. uh, and that I'd already been saved. You know, mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that I was experiencing things and they were all lies. Um, and it was, uh, it, was, it was terrible. It was a truly terrible experience. Um, but then I, I do. I remember after a few weeks, I was finished withdrawing and went outside and all of a sudden new endorphins are, are finally pumping through uh-huh. my head again and new chemicals. And I remember just the sensation of being born again, <clears throat> of looking at bushes as though they were things I had never seen before mm-hmm. and color as though I had never seen it before and birds and, and God delighting in my exploration. And it was, yeah, it was a t- truly remarkable experience. From that point on, what happened? I mean, I know you went through quite the transformation, but I'm sure things didn't immediately just fall into place. Can you walk us through right after you decided to follow Jesus? And then, um, you know, I'd love to actually hear a little more of what led you into your work with Proven. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, went back up to Pennsylvania and the plan was to move down to Tennessee because I needed to have a new foundation. Um, there were a few things. There were three prayers, uh, three things that needed to be satisfied if I was to stay in Pennsylvania. It was new work, new friends, a new place to live. Because I didn't, I didn't want to start assuming that I knew what my life would entail. Mm-hmm. Like I'd been doing that. So I was like, hey, God, like this seems prudent. I'm going to be up for two weeks. I'm going to grab my stuff, tell my friends about Jesus, and go back down south. Uh, but if you want me to stay, these three things need to happen. All three of those things happened. Uh, and I ended up moving in with this family, the, the James family. Um, and, uh, and they really just loved me back to life for a whole year. Um, I lived with them. They had an open door policy, a really beautiful community. And uh, yeah, they just loved me really hard. Um, so there was that, and that was significant because in a lot of ways I needed to learn how to be someone else's son before I could properly be my parents' son. Mm. And in a lot of ways that helped to give me a healthy template on how to be God's son, or what mm. it actually mm-hmm. looks like to, to live into adoption and that aspect of his gospel. Um, and so there's that. Uh, before I'd moved in, my, for the first book I read was um, David Brainerd's Diaries, uh, who was this gnarly missionary uh, in the 1700s. And uh, that guy was truly incredible. And he was right around my age. And mm-hmm. so I felt very galvanized by his faith. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
So those two, those two things. So is that, and then obviously reading the scriptures for the first time. I think I started memorizing James, um, mm-hmm. and that was very important. Uh, and I really haven't stopped memorizing scripture then. I've been able to memorize a couple different books in in the New Testament. <laughs> nothing mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. No Leviticus. Um, no, nothing <laughs> like that. But like certain Psalms, like I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've gotten to do that, and I've been memorizing a, a, a chapter in Proverbs recently. And mm-hmm. So different things like that that have been very nourishing uh, for my imagination, for my thinking, for my soul. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's probably a a good answer. After that, I went down to Florida uh, to Word of Life Bible Institute. I did a year down there, and then I stayed on staff with them for a while. I went to Tennessee. I worked on a farm uh, for wow. a year, um, and my parents were close by, and we got to rebuild. That's when we got to rebuild a mm-hmm. relationship because I was just an awful son, mm-hmm. and I got to learn how to be their son. Um, so that was a special time. And then I moved back up to Pennsylvania, lived with the James's family for a while, did community development up there, started to see our generation wrestling with real things, uh, mm-hmm. transgenderism and homosexuality and abortion. And I didn't know how to wrestle with them. Uh, one mm-hmm. of my favorite things about Jesus is that he wrestles with us. And so I thought, hey, if I can take uh, two years off to go get a degree so I can learn how to wrestle better with people um, and get further along in the way of love then then that just makes sense so there were a few uh graduate degree professors at liberty in apologetics that i really respected so i went down to liberty university and got a graduate degree uh, in apologetics wow that's awesome here i am i'm still in virginia um yeah and uh got a job with proven while i was down here wow well god's certainly taken you on quite a journey lots of different things every year but he's really faithful and and the work you're doing right now I know it's been very impactful in my life I just kind of stumbled upon it but I don't think it was a coincidence one thing I love about I mean I love everything that Proven does but in particular the podcast is that you are not afraid to be raw and real and detailed about sexual struggles about sexual integrity and then to view it through the lens of theology and culture and even philosophy so mm. how did you get involved with proving i've read some of your your work about how you did struggle with a porn addiction and you've um, gotten some great freedom from that so could you speak to that yeah let's see so, so when i met jesus uh he freed me from so much stuff but there are two things i couldn't uh, that that didn't go away one was nicotine addiction and the other one was uh pornography uh, I couldn't, for the life of me, kick either one of those. Um, and uh, praise God, nicotine isn't a part of my life anymore. That's why I'm always chewing on these toothpicks. They're mm-hmm. uh, little tea tree uh, mint toothpicks that I oh, order. Okay. And, uh, and it, just, it just helps me. It helps mm-hmm. me a lot. Um, and then with pornography, that was on and off where you'd get like a, a month clean and then relapse mm-hmm. and then three months clean and relapse. And it was just an awful, awful journey because it's such a demonic thing, man. It really taints the way that you see love and the opposite sex. It's, it, it's so much guilt and shame. Mm-hmm. It rewires your brain. It's just filled with traps. It's sex education. It, you bring so many expectations into marriage. It's just gnarly. Um, 
I, I hate porn. I sincerely hate that stuff. It is, it sucks. Um, and, and yeah, it really was proven. I moved down here and I went through proven. It's, uh, basically our curriculum is 12 weeks and we don't like to, we like to, well, we partner with churches. We do our best to partner with church. Somebody reaches out to us. We try and get plugged in with their church because we don't want people to go to like to church for God's word and then go over to proven for, you know, sexual integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to help clothe the bride of Christ because she struggles. Uh, she's struggling, especially right now. Um, and so I went through proven and that was massive. Uh, 12 weeks. A lot of people say, can it be shorter? <laughs> and uh, it's like, honestly, dude, like, like people spend years developing this addiction and it yeah. is, it is an addiction uh, developing this addiction. And, you know, a couple of days or just three weeks, isn't going to make it go away. And 12 weeks allows people to inherit uh, certain practices in the Jesus way that they can carry on after those 12 weeks, as well as relationships. Cause you do this, you do this curriculum in community. Um, so that was important. And I'm a writer. So I, I had submitted a few articles with them, contributed a few articles with them. And then I went and worked with some of their interns and, uh, and the director liked it and offered me a job. Um, wow. It was very cool. I didn't even try out for it, so to speak. It's just, it was just given to me. And uh, yeah, like I said, I've been here for four years. We started the podcast a year ago. And yeah, this is, I, I try and kind of frame them or approach them as the kind of conversations I, I've always wanted to have, mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. I, we had this woman, Gre- uh, Sheila Gregoire. Did you listen to that one? I listened to that one. It was great. It was, it was, it was so honest. It like, I was blushing the whole time through, but it was so good <laughs> yeah. for me. Yeah, I mean, t- yeah. It's titled it the orgasm gap and just like really looking at how pornography influences our expectations mm-hmm. and how Christian literature has, has recalibrated our expectations when it comes to intimacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a really candid conversation and it made me uncomfortable and I needed every bit of it. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really thankful for, because I need this stuff as much as anyone else. Like mm-hmm. this stuff is really mm-hmm. good for my soul. I want to, I want to be a good man. Like I want to be safe. And especially like so with something like the Robbie Zacharias experience recently, yeah. like that guy, I trusted him. He was kind of the apologist with a heart, mm-hmm. you know, and you mm-hmm. just didn't have a lot of those out there. They were more yeah. apologists are often more concerned with winning than they are with, mm-hmm. um, Anything else, much less compassion, as you mentioned earlier, in the Jesus way, just winning an argument um, as opposed to making a relationship. And Ravi was so, he spoke with so much verve, but also compassion. And, uh, and then to find out that he was so very unsafe, yeah. you know, that he exploited yeah. these women the way that he did, it's just heartbreaking. And uh, with all my heart, I want to be safe and I want to help other men around me who long to be safe, but are too scared to even hope for it. Mm -hmm. Uh, They just lie, lie to themselves and, and women too. I I think this is across the board. Like uh, we're all struggling and trying to figure out what it looks like to, to love properly and to be safe and to look at ourselves and not feel shame and to actually know Jesus and his compassion and his mercy and his affection for us. Yeah. Well, I, I love all of that. And I, I know that one thing that sets proven apart is it seems like it should be common sense, but it's all about looking at Jesus. I think there is a lot of 
material out there about sexual purity that is more about the action and the superficial than mm. this the state of your heart and i think that's mm. been very damaging in our generation as millennials mm. so i you know i really appreciate that and also i think that through this whole ravi zacharias thing i mean i was a huge ravi fan i even wrote an article for proven about how this past summer before everything came out i read a book of his where he described his relationship with his wife and when this happened i was i was quite honestly crushed i had also witnessed um quite recently a friend's husband being unfaithful and that was really hard for me so when i see a ministry like proven where men are upfront about their struggles and aren't afraid to have the sins of the past illuminated i see hope and I see that there is hope for our generation and for Gen Z and for, for people older than us. I'm encouraged greatly. I just really want to thank you for that. And I do want to point all listeners to Proven, to the podcast, to the blog, the website, if there is an ability to get connected with, with your church like you were talking about. I just, I think what you're doing is great and I'm really thankful for your ministry. Thanks, Hope. Yeah, that... Uh... All of that makes me very happy and uh, really grateful that you are standing with us and that you've been writing with us and contributing your voice to our audience because your voice is very important. And so we're very grateful. Well, thank you, Shane. Now, one thing you do at the end of your podcast that I kind of want to co-opt and turn it on you is asking how, how we can track with you, how they can track with Proven. And then also, is there anything we can be praying for you, especially mm. since you're in such a big time of transition. Mm. Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I obviously like the questions. Uh, so <laughs> uh-huh. you can track with us by uh, going to provenmen.org, um, nporn.org, thenakedgospel.org, any of those. Um, if you go to if you go to the nakedgospel.org, you'll be able to see the videos of our uh, interviews as well as get plugged into any of the platforms, whether it's for podcasting, whether it's Apple or iTunes or Spotify, whatever. Um, so for any nerds out there, because they can actually be quite nerdy. And then definitely check out the, the website, provenmen.org. That is our domain host right now. It's, in, it's transitioning to Proven Ministries, but if you go to provenmen.org, you can find resources for, for men, for women, for wives, and you can find Hope's articles, which you should definitely check out. Are you guys, uh, I, I'm getting, I'm God willing, getting married in a month. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, so those of you who are listening, you should pray that, uh, over April that Jesus does really good work in my heart and in my imagination, uh, so that I can love Kaylee well. Um, and again, like I said, the transition bit of, of living in between stories so that I can live into this story well, so that I can have a, a rinsed out imagination, um, and that my affections would be true. I just want to love her well and be present to her, um, yeah, that's what I want. So yeah. if you would pray that, that would make me happy. Definitely. Well, I'll be praying that, and I know my listeners will too. Thanks again for joining us, Shane, and I know your story is really going to, to be a blessing and encouragement to everyone who hears. Thank you, Hope. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hope Unyielding. If you enjoyed this episode, please pass it along to someone who you think it would encourage. 
To make sure you never miss an episode, hit subscribe or follow the show on Instagram at hope underscore unyielding. Thanks again for listening, and I hope to see you next time.